You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. As a practicing witch, I feel like the Anana, the goddess, talking to her kind of hot, feisty, shepherd lover. Yeah, per my wet field. Yeah, per my wet field. The god Kronos frantically hacked off his father's erect, rutting penis as he was penetrating his mother and threw the dismembered phallus and testicles into the sea. As the bloody organs hit the water, a boiling foam started to seethe, and then something magical happened. Hello! 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 And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. And I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today we have such an impressive guest. Joining us all the way from London, Professor Bettany Hughes is a historian, author, and broadcaster who was awarded an OBE, the Order of the British Empire, for her services to history, which makes her the very first dame to ever appear on our <laughs> humble show. She is currently professor of history at the New College of the Humanities and a research fellow at King's College. Her first book, Helen of Troy, Goddess, Princess, Whore, has been translated into 10 languages. Her second book, The Hemlock Cup, Socrates, Athens, and the Search for the Good Life was a New York Times bestseller. And her third book, Istanbul, A Tale of Three Cities, has been translated into 12 languages. I became a fan of hers through her over 50 historical radio and TV documentaries that she has written and starred in for the past 20 years that have aired on the BBC, Channel 4, Netflix, Discovery, PBS, The History Channel, National Geographic, BBC World, ITV, and more, covering everything from the mysteries of the ancient world to the philosophers whose ideas shaped modern culture. Her new book is called Venus and Aphrodite, a biography of desire, and it liberates the goddess of love from all the tired romantic cliches that she's been saddled with over the centuries. And it reveals how her radical feminine energy continues to influence us today. The book comes out September 22nd, and I cannot wait to talk to her all about it Welcome, Bethany Hughes. Ooh. Yay. Oh, thank you. How lovely to speak to you. Really, really cool. I don't, I'm impressed rather than impressive. I think it's an amazing, what an amazing thing you've got going here. Your conversations are so interesting. Oh, thank you. Um, I mentioned in my intro that I became familiar with your work through your many documentaries, and I've always appreciated both how you highlight women and how they've lived throughout history and also that you include other women historians in your productions. I love watching you guys kick back and drink mm -hmm. wine and talk about Hegel and <laughs> Marx and Kant and stuff. It's so fun. <laughs> Can you give us a brief overview of how you went from a history student to a history professor to someone with the power to actually increase the visibility of women in history programming? How did it all happen? Uh, good question. Well, I think basically um, it was being a bit bloody minded because when I was growing up, history was so unfashionable. It was really uncool. Um, everybody said if you went into it, you'd end up in this kind of dead end job studying dead languages and dead people. 
And I knew it was the opposite. I knew that history was the story of life and of an incredible kind of wealth and disparity and inclusive form of life as well. And that wasn't what I was seeing in the history books or on telly. So I'd kind of made it my mission, really, to, to kind of dive deep into history and to share these exciting stories from the from the past. It was pretty tough initially. Uh, people were so discouraging. As I said, they kind of kept on going, why are you doing history? give up on history. That is really like, you know, yesterday's story. <laughs> and I think it's partly because, um, you know, at that point, so I was at college in the 80s and then kind of, you know, uh, getting jobs and trying to forge my way in the 90s. And there was almost this idea that all the answers lay in the future, um, that this huh. sort of notion like the year 2000 was going to be this massive reset button on the story of humanity and the past would be irrelevant and the, and the future. And I, and I knew that that wasn't the case, but I was kind of swimming against the tide. So I think it was partly because people kept on saying no. So I thought, sod you, I'm going <laughs> to make you say yes. So there was definitely that thing of actually, you know, in a way, struggle and obstacles being put in your way um, that fired me up. And then I had this brilliant meeting um, with a BBC producer kind of very early on. And I, I did this whole thing. I'd got this pitch about wanting to write back in the story of women and giving voices to the voiceless, you know, allowing history to tell the true story of humanity rather than just the one that we've been handed down. And I had this whole spiel and I finished talking and you know that terrible moment in a meeting when you realise that because you've stopped talking, there is just silence. <laughs> and there was like kind of, you know, tumbleweed blowing through the office. And I thought, oh, yeah, this isn't a good sign. And, um, and then he said, can I just tell you three things? One, he said, this was kind of in the late 90s. He said, one, nobody is interested in history anymore. Uh, two, Nobody watches history on TV. So this was kind of before the whole revolution with the film Gladiator and people being, you know, interested in the past. And then he said, three, nobody wants to be lectured at by a woman. <laughs> oh, so, my God. I mean, <laughs> ladies, this was the 1990s. It was not the 1890s. <laughs> and I just remember, like, this, what are you saying? And as you can imagine, that put a certain degree of fire in my belly. And I just thought, you you know, I am going to make sure I prove you wrong. So it was that really, it was that kind of hit back that, that made me determined to try to um, share kind of my love really for this for this world with, with as, uh, a wider world as possible. Um, so I think that was that was how it happened. Um, uh, and I, you know, again, it was really tough at the beginning, to be honest, people kept on saying, how, you know, why would they take you seriously? Because you're a woman. They kept, I mean, you know, I can't believe those words are coming out of my mouth now, but that is what it was like then. You know, it was, it was, it was a very different sea that you were swimming in. So, so I just kind of put my, nobody says no to me hat on and, uh, <laughs> forged my way through and actually one of the very first programs I did was about the Spartans the amazing ancient civilization the Spartans and whose women were incredible so there is just something special going on with Spartan women I think because Spartan men were all out fighting um, from the ages of 70 to 30 they were in this kind of massive military boot camp um, and it was all about being the ultimate warrior 
which weirdly left space in normal society for women to fill that gap. So on the streets of Sparta, you'd have seen a lot of women around. We think they were allowed to speak in council. Um, they were considered very strong. They were, they were given the same rations as men, whereas in most of the ancient world, women were always given half, half rations. But in Sparta, they were allowed to drink and eat the same as men. Um, they were allowed to ride in chariots. You know, they were so very cool. And I remember going into actually what Channel 4 in the UK and saying, you know, this is a story that has to be told. Nobody's telling it. And it's 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 just terrible. And we're denying history by not telling it. And I have to say there, there's a very good guy. He said, OK, it's really interesting. I've got loads of loads of proposals about the Spartans who are very famous and you know popular, but nobody's focused it on the women of Sparta. So that was that was my first TV um, program. And um yeah, I've been battering down doors since. I mean, it's still, you know, people still say no. And I go like, la, la, I can't hear you. We just got <laughs> to do it anyway. What you said about the women of Sparta, it actually reminded me of a story that we have in our latest issue of Bust that's going to come out into the world any minute now. Um, we did a story about pandemics in history mm. and how specifically how the Black Plague and the flu of 1918 actually resulted in improved conditions for women mm -hmm. because of labor shortages. And it sounds like it was similar in Sparta as well. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how the COVID-19 pandemic might influence women's lives just based on historical Ooh. precedent. Yeah, well, that's such, such a fascinating um, thing to discuss because you're right. You know, it's a very, you know, being a historian, to be honest, is it's a very sad thing profession quite a lot of the time because you're looking back at these terrible abuses these terrible moments in history these not just decades not just centuries but thousands of years of suffering and it can be really hard but you what you do also see is in the very darkest and worst of times there often is something which um speeds up which kind of expedites change that and and the black death the plague is an, is a perfect example of that this was an appalling thing very similar um to the pandemic that we're living through now it sort of apparently came out of nowhere um it raced through human populations places that thought they were safe suddenly would have kind of one two three then suddenly 30 40 50 100 1000 cases find a case of the plague in california yeah, there is. The, it doesn't. It hasn't gone. Yeah. So oh, sadly, oh. that is that is still around. But at least we've had you know a thousand years to study <laughs> yeah. it and work out kind of what right. we can try try to do it. Whether there is this new thing. Um, but you're you're absolutely right. So the Black Death um, caused all kinds of revolutions. So the the peasants, so-called peasants' revolts um, here in England, and as you say, because so many men of working age died, people had to accept women in those roles they had to uh, they had to make sure that they were literate they had to allow them kind of status and standing so there was this like kind of you know lightning strike of change that happened after that um you know really interesting kind of social revolution so that's i'm not going to predict the one you know i'm a historian rather than a kind of crystal ball gazer but <laughs> if we look back at those lessons from history it certainly seems to be that these appalling universally shared moments do accelerate uh, good change that change that should should happen people suddenly kind of realize that actually you can't mess around. You know, you've just got to go with the good. And so good things can come out of it. So I think it would be amazing, wouldn't it, if 
uh, all those, you know, the beginnings, we were moving in the right direction. We had such a long way to go. And people always kind of say to me, you know, why do we think there's this kind of issue with, with inequality of all kinds? Um, and you just have to look at the depths of the roots of the problem. You know, we're dealing with uh, sexism and, and racism and anxiety about the other that stretches back thousands of years yeah. you know so we can trace the beginning of these these feelings and ideas and prejudices and attitudes back to kind of three and a half thousand four thousand years ago so there is a lot of catching up to do so in a way it doesn't surprise me that there are um uh, you know that it's 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 not plain sailing by any means to kind of make change happen but we were beginning to move in the right direction um i think in in terms of the story of women and it would be amazing wouldn't it um as well as obviously uh, in the story of anti-racism if the pandemic actually accelerated that change and and uh, stood stood on the side of the good yeah yeah i hope so if anything so. <laughs> good could come out of it, that would be right. awesome. Yeah, completely, <laughs> completely agree. I think it's, I mean, it's going to be really, you know, the truth is we all know economically it's going to be unbelievably tough and there are people who are hit hit unbelievably hard. It's certainly going to get worse before it gets better. But in taking the very long view, mm -hmm. I think it might change things for people. Yeah. I uh, would like to now switch gears to talking about your book, Venus and Aphrodite. In uh, the beginning of the book, you wrote, for four decades, I have followed the scent of her trail. It is a journey that has taken me to archaeological digs in the Middle East and archives in the chill of the Baltic, from the shores of the Caspian Sea to the nightclubs of Hoxton. What is it about the goddess of love that has compelled you for so long? And why have you chosen to write about her now? I think, you know what it is? I think it's because, oh my God, we all make mistakes, don't we? And we are all led by desire and love, often on the very wrong paths. But it is a constant in our experience, um, as is the desire to actually to collaborate and to work in communion with one another. I mean, and I think, you know, we've just been talking about the pandemic, but it, hasn't that been one of the beautiful um, results, unexpected side effects of it, that people have really decided to join together in communion to try to find ways to kind of work together, put their shoulders to the same wheel to make change happen. And that desire to, as I said, to kind of work together is something which always came under Aphrodite's wing. So I was basically really sick of her being described on kind of Valentine's days as this wafty blonde goddess, you know, looking a bit simpering and kind of pretty pink, rosy, rosy robes. And I thought, if anybody from the ancient world saw this figure and you asked, is that Aphrodite? They'd go, no, you know, Aphrodite is much stronger. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's not Aphrodite. So it's kind of trying to um, rescue her really in a way from from thousands of years, um, to be honest, of kind of sexism and, and undermining what she was and discovering the roots of this feisty, raw creature. Because forgive me if there are any goddess worshippers listening to this. I, I don't believe she's real. I don't believe she is actually a goddess. I think what the ancient world does is they take really important ideas in society and they give them a name and a face. And in the case of Aphrodite or Venus, they gave a name and a face to the urges in us to love and to lust and to desire what we don't have, but also, as I said, to, to desire to collaborate. So she's kind of the incarnation of desire in, in all its forms. Um, so I thought I just had to tell her story. And I, I've spent a lot of time 
in the Eastern Mediterranean, North Africa and the Middle East. And if you look back there, you know, she is absolutely not this highfalutin uh, creature in a, in a robe. As I said, she is this feisty, powerful goddess of sex and of war, of, of love and delight and also of death. And, and if you start to look at that side of her story, you realise what, what a potent figure she is. And, and to be honest, that we kind of ignore her at our peril. <laughs> Something else that I really admire about your career is how you've been advocating for um, for the classics to be studied in primary school. And um, I love that you do that. I, I think I'm unusual in the fact that I went to junior high in New York. I went to high school in Virginia. And between those two schools, I took six years of Latin. Wow. And I know that that those studies have helped me all in all different kinds of ways in, in my life and in my career, all the way up to interviewing you today. Oh. Thank you, Latin <laughs> class. Yeah. Um, but even I thought I knew my Greco-Roman mythology pretty well. But in reading your book, I realized that the I knew that Venus had emerged from the sea in like a, a shell with foam, but I had no idea about what came before. And you write that as she was being conceived, the god Kronos frantically hacked off his father's erect, rutting penis as he was penetrating his mother and threw the dismembered phallus and testicles into the sea. As the bloody organs hit the water, a boiling foam started to seethe, and then something magical happened. From the frothing sea spoon rose an awful and lovely maiden, goddess Aphrodite. Why do you think her origin story is so bloody and violent and weird and castrating? I know. It's all very weird, isn't it? Yeah, well, you're exactly right. Again, if you say the birth of Venus, probably the image that springs to people's minds is the beautiful Botticelli birth of mm -hmm. Venus, where she's wafting in kind of on a wind, naked, on a shell, you know, it all looks very pretty. Although it's all actually, if you start to decode that painting, there's all kinds of stuff going on there too. But you're right. It's, a, it's you know, it's a much feistier, rawer more gory um origin and i think what um you know what we're being told in that story is that uh sex is delightful and it can be dangerous and we ignore its danger um again at our peril i don't i don't mean it's a bad thing but the kind of forces of sex and sexual jealousy and sexuality are so strong we need to kind of rather than pussyfoot around them we need to kind of embrace them as this incredible uh, force in yeah. our lives um, and it is yeah I, I was thinking I, you know it's this, a very that's very wet ass per pussy i get very wop vibes from this have you seen this video yet for wop stands for wet ass pussy it's cardi b and Megan Thee Stallion, it's, the video is going crazy in America. Everybody's watching it millions of times. And people are freaking out because the whole thing is a, is a very graphic depiction of feminine arousal. Wow. And conservatives are in a twist about it. Are yeah. they? I've got to watch it, obviously. Yeah, it's called WAP. I definitely was thinking about it in that poem that was like uh, the Plow My Vagina poem. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, who will plow yeah. my vulva? Yeah, plow, plow my wet field. Who will plow all my that. wet ground? So yeah. again, this is the the kind of grandmother of Venus. Yeah. <laughs> so this is just to explain for people who don't quite know what we're talking about with plow my wet ground. So this is this amazing kind of grandmother, in effect, of Venus and Aphrodite that goes right back to the again to the to the Middle East to these. Um, fabulous goddesses um, Inanna Ishtar and Astarte and that poem is about Inanna 
And these are like Aphrodite and Venus. They're goddesses of war and sex, as well as of love. And um, as you say, the poems written in the voice of Inanna for Inanna are incredibly explicit. So that whole thing about ply my wet ground, that is Inanna, the goddess, talking to her kind of hot, feisty uh, shepherd lover called Demutsi, who also becomes a king, which in the Aphrodite story becomes Aphrodite and Adonis. So she absolutely has the upper hand um, in that relationship. And that's what you see with this, this goddess. It's really important sort of tracking her through time. That as I said, she ends up this kind of, you know, fluffy, fluffy blonde bombshell. But she starts out life with enormous status and standing. And you feared Aphrodite mm-hmm. and Venus. You, you know, you didn't you didn't take her on lightly. Um, and then gradually what happens through time is that her power is diminished. Um, she becomes this naked goddess. She becomes the kind of ultimate um, object of, of lust. You know, the famous um, Canidian Aphrodite, where she's sort of like her hand is hovering over her breasts and her and her vulva. It's sort of like they're, she's embarrassed by them, but she's sort of pointing to them at the same time. You know, <laughs> that's the that's unfortunately is the Aphrodite that people have come to know and love. But the the first couple of thousand years of her life was a story was completely completely different she was she was this almighty all-powerful goddess um, to be feared and honored and respected when you write about the roots of pre-venus worship in the bronze age which you were just talking about um it was from 3000 bc to 1200 bc you mentioned that in that era and i actually had to stop and reread this because this sort of rocked my world in these, this pre-Venus era that you were just describing, you said most women of this epoch were mothers at age 12, grandmothers at 24, and dead by 30. Yeah. Does this mean the original conception of the goddess of love was a 12-year-old? And does our conception of womanhood bear any resemblance at all to the lives of the women of the Bronze Age who were parents at an age that we still consider childhood. Were these kids able to parent the same way that we do? Were they able to love the same way that we do? I mean, I think, yeah, you've got a completely mind shift. Mm -hmm. It's that really important thing of not judging history in the past with our 21st century heads and eyes and hearts and ears going, you know, you've got to move yourself. It's a really good exercise in empathy history because you have to kind of move yourself back into the story of those people, those men and women and children of the past. And exactly as you said, uh, you were almost always a mother at 12. As soon as you, as soon as you uh, could menstruate, you, then you became a mother, uh, grandmother at 24, often dead by 30, often because of childbirth. I mean, all, you know, cancer and leprosy and, and war wounds as well, but but often childbirth. So this was a really juvenile population. It was, uh, which also, to be honest, explains to me a lot of the stories, the myth stories. You know, I mean, if you think about the Trojan War and Paris and Helen. Somehow in our head, we imagined them all to be these sort of middle-aged people. And they weren't. They were these young kids kind of with everything to gain and everything to to lose. So I think it was a very um, here and now existence combined with this really powerful, potent sense that you were part of this cosmic power, this supernatural world, because the gods and goddesses and demigods and spirits, they were all real. They didn't think it wasn't like optional to believe in them. You know, there was a God in every tree. There was a spirit in every bit of fruit that ripened, uh, on, you know, in your field. There were there were these sort of supernatural magical powers everywhere. So I think it was a really high octane, heady world to live in. And I've actually just been um, 
just before lockdown, I managed to get back with just a couple of hours to spare. I was doing research in Egypt and also in Greece um, at the kind of use of, of drug taking in these um, societies. And you really see, you know, it's incredible to in, in those early Greek societies where all these myths come from, the women are mixing up huge vats of of laudanum so of opiates mixed with alcohol and they're like 12 and they're 12 yeah yeah and offering them round totally to the assembled well what am i talking about i was smoking (laughs) when i was well you know that's that's again this these were thought of kind of drugs that would transport you to another world to another way of thinking to another way of being um and we find them in the graves of the women at the time so you can analyze the pots and we know that there were these sort of industrial She's like bury me with my well, opium. Totally, completely, literally. So they used to bury them with these little crystal bronze, um, bronze and crystal brooches in the shape of opium poppies, just to kind of prove that. Wow. Oh yeah. That this was a part of your world, and I do think. Um, I mean, I'm not, you know, diminishing the amazing power of the human imagination, but I do think that that's where a lot of these crazy stories like you get in the Odyssey of these multi-headed mm-hmm. monsters and, you know, kind of wild dogs and, and siren goddesses who are half birds, um, half women. Those are the kinds of things you would dream up after a really, really, yeah, a <laughs> really heady, heady night in Laudanum. <laughs> so that's what's going on. Somebody's just tripping and sees a pelican and they're like, there's totally, a goddess. Totally. <laughs> and uh, again, in, in Egypt, um, they we know that they kind of smoked and drank uh, the blue lotus flower the whole time. And the blue lotus is almost extinct in Egypt now, but it definitely has um, psychotropic qualities. And I was I was lucky enough to... Um, smell this blue lotus flower that this brilliant eccentric woman had been cultivating in the desert to stop it getting extinct and just the smell of it I was totally sent it's an aphrodisiac it absolutely is ladies there's no doubt about it you know and these what these women were doing was drinking and eating this stuff the whole time so uh you know that's that way that's pussy so what a what a world so no you're right it was kind of terrible and brutal and you know I don't want to kind of give the wrong idea it wasn't like a you know proto-feminist wonderland in any sense of the world word but but it was you know there were different rules different ways to engage with life and different possibilities for for uh, young women um, and women of all ages so um, yeah kind of quite quite a time and a place man i i've noticed that goddess worship and interest in historical goddesses uh from a variety of cultures has become intertwined with the neo-pagan wicca practices that many of our readers seem very interested in right now i'm wondering what your thoughts are on the role of ancient deities in the modern ritual lives of women well, they're certainly there. So that's why, you know, it was a genuine apology at the beginning when I said I'm not a goddess. Where I don't I don't happen to believe that they exist. I, I think they've got really important lessons to tell us. And, uh, you know, the perception of that world where you had these very strong uh, female characters and role leaders and guides is really, really important for us to reclaim and bear in mind. Um, but, the, of course, you know, if you think about gods and goddesses they're immortals so they never die so their influence can be felt across time and space so there are people who absolutely think that they they are in in us and around us today um 
you know I think you can you can go you know you can go a lot further wrong than look back to the past for that inspiration and understanding of how the female was interacted with um there was this really interesting notion even particularly with with venus and aphrodite again if you look back at the evidence from cyprus for instance and from early middle eastern societies that she is described as a goddess who allows a allows a woman to be a man and a man to be a woman and in some of her iterations she's shown with a beard so there's a, a gender kind of fluidity that is possible within the worship of Aphrodite so a lot of the things that people are embracing now that we kind of think we're very modern in doing it right at the birth of civilization as we know it and I lose, use that term incredibly loosely what I mean is kind of people living together in sustained communities all these ideas were being explored and embraced and tested about how female we are how male we are what you know what the combination of the two is um, and that often comes under the purview of the goddesses of society so women today who you know who have a, a kind of idea a very present idea of these female goddesses you know they're right in bringing them to our attention because i said you know in their in their worship and in the stories that surrounded them there is an awful lot to learn i as a i I would uh, as a practicing witch i feel like i don't think they really exist that's why i like being a witch because it's not like gods and goddesses are real things they're concepts and fables to me yeah you put an offering of pomegranate because of what it symbolizes because of the story that someone told about that a thing to meditate on and not that you really think it exists. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, it does make so. sense. And those kind of those kind of, you know, the, the worshippers of Aphrodite spent a lot of time uh, in moon worship. And Sappho, of course, the poet, the amazing female poet from the island of Lesbos, who gives us our word lesbian, she writes a lot about the, the moon. She's the first person to dis- in the world that we know of who describes the light of the moon as being silvery. Um, and, and kind of one of the things I love about her as well is that she's the first person ever to describe love as being bittersweet although she's actually she's actually a bit more honest and she says it's sweet and then bitter you know it's kind of the the, the greek that she uses <laughs> if you nailed it but yeah you know how yeah, how incredible and that that there, as you know you know the stories of artemis diana the hunter there was there was real association between uh female deities and female power and their adherence and the power of the moon although I think what's really important for us to remember as well is there wasn't this kind of binary divide in the ancient world that we imagine today so actually there were also sun goddesses Um, it wasn't just that the sun belonged to men you know there were these amazing goddesses of the sun in in Hittite culture in Aryan culture so what's you know today Turkey and you see them these these fabulous creatures with this beautiful kind of sunburst around their heads and you probably know this story that people talk about a lot, that when you see the Virgin Mary holding Jesus, that that mm-hmm. came from um, Egyptian culture, from Isis, you know, this goddess with this kind of burst around her with head holding holding her son. But actually, it's earlier than that. It comes from the from the uh, Anatolia and those eastern lands. And it's this this Hittite goddess who was also a son, Ariana, who was also a son goddess. So, um, yeah, you know, you got to, as I said, it's it's it, it makes you very open-minded 
looking back at the at, at the past because you're you're given all these very very different ways of being to to try to understand and access something that i've been thinking about a lot lately lately in the wake of the black lives matter protest movement that erupted here after the killing of george floyd is how black history um has but more importantly has not been taught to the degree that european history has even for people who are curious about history and seek out historical programming for fun it's hard to think of many documentaries that cover sub-saharan africa and tell the story of african cultures that existed before colonialism and the white enslavement of black people i feel like i've seen a million documentaries about egypt including yours but outside of that, the documentaries about Africa tend to focus on nature and lions and tigers and zebras and not people. I'm wondering how can we as history programming viewers lobby for more documentaries that cover the experiences of black people and other people of color um, pre-colonialism? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, totally vitally important and urgent work to be done and I think you can lobby by shouting because the broadcasters um, you know they listen to viewers interestingly because they want lots of people to watch their shows so they we know that there's this terrible gaping yawning gap but it's been traditionally very very hard to get those stories um, commissioned and also that it's been the wrong people asking for them for the platform there are so many things that it would be incredible that could happen as a result of Black Lives Matter. And one of those was being Africa speaking uh, about its own story with African voices, with its own voice. That that would revolutionise mm-hmm. um, how we tell the story of the world. And you're absolutely right. It's been the most terrible, um, appalling gap. I mean, we... we um, a couple of years ago, we were suggesting doing the story of the amazing Dahomey women of West Africa, who is this um, army of warrior women. And I remember talking to somebody who said that they tried to Google warrior women in Africa. And the only Google hit that came up were um, the army, the female soldiers of Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. And yet these women... Uh, there was, it was a standing army, uh, you know, they existed for centuries, for, for le- over 200 years. Uh, they were, Didn't we write about these women? We had a whole feature story in Bust about the Dahomey women. Yeah. Why isn't that being taught in schools? But immediately busts so many stereotypes and, and just as a, just an honest portrayal of the story of the world. Uh, I'm going to ask you just a question totally for my own personal edification because I have you here. <laughs> Great. Uh, For me, as a Jewish person, I was raised with the story that the Jewish people were enslaved by the ancient Egyptians and that we helped build the pyramids and then we somehow escaped and wandered around in the desert nomadically for 40 years. And I thought that that was an agreed on historical fact until adulthood when I read that historians are not at all united in their belief in this narrative at all. As an expert in the classical world, what can you tell me about this era for my ancestors? Can you clear up any of my confusion? Oh, well, I'll try and clear up a bit, but I'm really, (laughs) really careful. I have to say, because I wrote a book on Socrates. And the great thing about Socrates is he says, the one thing we know is that we know nothing. So I always try not to tread into the territory of other specialists. And, you know, the, the the history of the Jewish people and the Jewish experience is absolutely not my specialism. So... I'm treading incredibly, <laughs> incredibly gingerly. But, I, but um, you know, what is what, you know, what you've absolutely kind of hit on is this really interesting story kind of 
um, uh, the story of enslavement, which is much more complicated for that time than we realise. So there is no question that one of the reasons people went to war was to enslave. And you get these appalling accounts from the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, which is basically when these stories um, are, are both happening and then being set down. I mean, terrible stories of uh, pharaohs and rulers and kings going to war so that they can capture 15,000 uh, women and men at, at one time and bring them back. You know, this is obviously a pre-mechanical society. So all development, so-called, comes on the back of, on, of uh, you know, the blood and sweat and tears of, of others. So... The, a slavery was completely endemic and systemic in the story of the ancient world. So there is no doubt that Jewish people were enslaved, but I think they weren't enslaved to build the pyramids. In fact, I, you know, <laughs> that didn't that didn't happen because we we know if you look at the you know the great pyramids of um, Khufu, uh, the Giza pyramid, the famous pyramids. Um, uh, the, again, there was slavery, but actually, if you look, the majority of people we think now it's kind of more like indentured labour. And there are whole um, uh, towns that grow up. And this is on the Nile. We forget that the Nile was right next to the pyramids. And these were these were uh, men and women who were paid in beer. You know, they weren't paid in cash. And they, they formed these kind of uh, groups that used to compete to build more of the pyramids at the same time. So, And they were Egyptians. They're, they're, they're kind of, you know, not Jewish travellers. So it, that's why it doesn't mean that there wasn't abuse and uh, uh you know, terrible, terrible objectification and misuse of cultures. But we do have to be really, really careful about our sources because mm -hmm. it's very, as we know, you know, it's a very storytelling is what we do as a species. And it's very compelling to tell certain stories in certain ways to kind of make us believe history. But we have to we have to allow the truth of history to speak for itself. But it is, you know, what is also true is that that story of those um, early nomadic tribes and, you know, what in, what incredible uh, dangers and, um, you know, uh, terrible uh, obstacles that were thrown in their path. So all those, it's almost like all of those stories of struggle have been brought into one narrative, but actually it's almost a bigger narrative of struggle mm -hmm. that relates to different civilizations. Yeah. And everyone wants to claim the pyramids because they're so great, but I wonder how mm -hmm. you feel about the history channel in particular, giving airtime to people saying that ancient aliens built the pyramids. Yeah. I know just today I got, I got a tweet <laughs> from somebody going, you're ridiculous. They were definitely built by aliens. Like, really? They, I mean, ladies, I can tell you they were not built by aliens. I've been down. Why I've, is it easier to think of aliens building the pyramids than Africans? Building exactly, exactly, exactly. That's a, like, that what kind is of the, fuckery is that? I know, exactly. So it's so, it's, you know, beyond ridiculous that, and exactly that, this notion, these, these are, you know, what we're seeing with the pyramids is a civilization that's already been going for 2000 years you know so these are people who really really know what they're doing they really thought really carefully about how to uh, um, erect those incredible million blocks of many tons worth of stone i mean it is you know it is an extraordinary place though when i was last there uh, last year i i was actually is petrifying i managed to get down underneath the great pyramid at giza into one of the chambers oh my goodness that is not <laughs> That is not uh, something I'm going to repeat because you, you, I, I was under, uh, you know, about 30 meters under the pyramid, and I was stroking the roof 
and it's your back right down in the bedrock. So it's all like calcified seashells. And as you as I stroke the roof, just all this salt and uh, uh, <laughs> millennia old seashells fell on my face. And I really thought oh this is this is something very unnatural about what I'm doing and where, where I'm, where I am right now. But, um, but again, that all been, you know, that channel and that tomb and that chamber had all been dug out and had been planned so that it wouldn't destabilize the pyramids. So no, exactly. The aliens, you know, it's not aliens. It's <laughs> <laughs> I have got to know, and I need to know, Bethany Hughes, are you a feminist? Yes, I'm a feminist. <laughs> oh I am such a feminist and I'm a feminist in the, the classic sense that I'm a feminist because uh, I believe in endeavouring for equality and striving for equality and for the fulfilment of potential of everyone on earth so how on earth could you not be a feminist when there's such extraordinary inequality when it comes to uh, the female species although with your Latin I slightly kind of tremble when I hear the word feminism because it originally came from this um the Latin feminar which means a kind of cute little woman so I just wish it had another uh, had another title uh. but we'll stick with it you know because it's been out there long enough now yes I am <laughs> you can't How, change it now. <laughs> has your career in history impacted your feminism at all or vice versa yeah it has I mean I you know I kind of entered the world um uh, as a, a an academic at the end of the 80s and I had that to be honest really kind of naive idea that a lot of the battles had happened and had been won and I was entering this this uh, kind of walking on what was felt like a more of a level playing field and I'd look back in time and you know like it or not, we've always been at least 50% of the population and we've probably occupied about 0.5% of official recorded history. So we have been physically written out of history through the story of time. And I, you know, I'm a very positive person. So when I research, I think I'm going to find, I'm going to find an example of an extraordinary moment where women were given voices and they are there, but they are so few and far between that you just realise this, this, um, uh, as I said, kind of eternity almost um, of oppression and subjugation. So all it's done is definitely, you know, made me feel stronger. So yes, I doing doing history has just made me weep for those millions of women who've not been able, been allowed to fulfil their potential and don't have the chance to. I, I kind of weep for them often, and just just these these terrible stories of of extraordinary women who weren't allowed to do what they should have done just because of their sex. So, so yeah, you know, it makes me, it, it, it kind of makes me gird my loins and be determined to kind of fight, fight harder. And it, as I said, it makes me understand the depths of the roots of the, of the problem, but also that we are slowly, slowly moving in the right direction now. You mentioned a little bit the, the sexism that you encountered when you were first uh, starting out in your career. Have you said that that sexism in your industry has gotten better over time or is it just sort of like a constant irritant? Yeah, it has got better. But, uh, but as I said, you know, it's, this is the, this is the world that people are raised in. So people have been raised listening, being, listening to male authorial voices. It was very unusual to hear female authorial voices. Um, and, uh, you know, every, 
uh, kind of warrior role model. You know, now we have kind of Xenia and Wonder Woman, but the Amazons weren't really there as, as role models for, for most women, whereas male superheroes were. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, so, so it's, um, you know, there's a, there is definitely a long way to go, uh, but it has got, it has, it has got better. I think, you know, I think the fact that we can kind of shout out problems as and when they arise really helps us uh, speed up change. So yeah, it has it has it has got but well at least I'm allowed on telly now, which I wasn't <laughs> when I started out. So before I let you go, I need to ask you, Bethany Hughes, what you're watching. And when I say what you're watching, it is a broad question. It covers books, movies, television, music, music videos, podcasts anything that you are consuming pop culturally we want to know about it because it is probably very very cool Bethany Hughes what you watch oh cool I don't think it's cool at all because I've been reading a lot of poetry I don't know how cool that is but I've rediscovered poetry in lockdown and I've been watching this amazing series called Succession from this incredible writer Jesse Armstrong which is all about the story of a huge media dynasty you know it has to be based on Murdoch surely you know I can't believe that they haven't had their asses sued to hell but it has to be that story but anyway the we're told it's a fictional story about a, a kind of media mogul, his world domination, and who is going to succeed him. And I love it because it's like every single Ooh. Greek drama and tragedy I've ever studied from the ancient world with the most beautiful, nuanced, transporting performances. So I've been watching Succession. I have also been watching Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You. I was, oh, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. I was due to meet Michaela a few days before lockdown and I can't believe we didn't manage to do it and of course now she's become like this super stratospheric incredible uber hero I don't know if you find this that often I'm just walking down the street or sitting writing or cycling and bits of it come into my head and that is the real that is what's real it's transported me completely to her world through her writing and her performance and the performances that she's encouraged from others. So it's, and you suddenly sort of snap back in and think, oh my God, no, 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 actually, I know I'm in, you know, I'm in West London, you know, and there's a pandemic that's happened. But that, it's just a remarkable, you know, deep, 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 beautiful work. So Succession and Michaela Cole, I May Destroy You. And what poems are you reading? Oh, I want to know. Oh, well, I do, I love... Sappho, the Greek poet, I mean, she's just, she writes so beautifully about love. Um, and also anything that was written, there was a kind of amazing time, I think between about the 17th and the early, very, very early 19th century, when people like began to worship nature again. And there was this notion of the kind of power and beauty of the natural world. So I've been absorbing myself in this. I'll send you some when we when we when oh, we finish. Great. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll swap you some, send you some over. But yeah, yeah. Poetry, succession well, and I may destroy you. Thank you so much for being on our show. We appreciate your time so much. You're such an inspiration. Oh, and and I feel like our listeners are going to love this as much as we did. So thank you so much. Oh, total pleasure. Really, really lovely to speak to you too. And, you know, thank you for having me on. And let's, let's catch up again. Let's catch up again soon. That'd be brilliant. Hey, podcast fans. Did you know that the best place to listen to your favorite shows ad-free is Stitcher Premium? They've got Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Wolverine The Lost Trail, Bitch Sesh, The Fantasy Footballers, 
Science Rules with Bill Nye, and more, all without commercial interruptions. And we can hook you up with a sweet deal. To get one month free, go to stitcher.com slash premium and use promo code POPTARTS. That's stitcher.com slash premium, promo code POPTARTS. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via WolfieVibesPublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to My Vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. (laughs) Scams. I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which Amazing. Was so smart. I mean, so like, smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. Kelly Watts. We have never spoken to a historian on this show before. It's so interesting to talk to someone who's with expertise in history during this very historically important moment in time. You know what I mean? Yeah, she was awesome. I love it. Yeah. Well, we have come to the point in our program where I ask you the most burning of questions. Callie Watts, what you watching? Well... Um, I got into Pin 15 on Hulu. Have you watched that? Mm-hmm. I watched a few episodes of the first season. Yeah, I watched a couple of the first season when it came out, and I didn't really get into it that much. It was okay. But my sister kept talking about it, so I gave it another shot. And it is hilarious. Season two was so fucking funny. It is. It, it was just hilarious. There's one episode where they find, like, they think they're giving these magical wish, witch powers, like witchy powers, because they find some lady's ID in a tree. <laughs> it's as crazy <laughs> as it sounds. It is such a cute show. I, I'm i so into it. Um, so I watched that. I love how those girls 
are like grown women who are so good at playing young <laughs> teens. I know. And then they're just like grown women walking around with kids. It's funny as fuck. Um, I watched Nurse Ratchet, um, the new Ryan Murphy with Sarah Paulson, Cynthia Nixon. It was visually beautiful. Um, it wasn't as good as a lot of the other Ryan Murphy, Sarah Paulson vehicles. Um, but, you know, maybe it's going to shape up more in season two. It wasn't bad. It definitely got better as it went on. The first episode was kind of really slow, but then it really picked up towards the end. I'm going to stick around for season two, but it's not the best thing I've seen of that pairing. It's on Netflix, right? Yeah. I was going to prepare for that by rewatching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Do you advise that I do that or should I just jump right in? I mean, I've seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and read the book so many times. That, I mean, it is what it is. I don't think you need to. It, it, it stands alone without even knowing what One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is. Because it's like a pre-story. So you don't, okay. you don't even need to know. You could be a millennial and not even know what that book is and you'd be fine. Okay. Um, and then um, I watched The Good Place. I did like a deep dive on The Good Place because I was, I had not, not got past season one before, and everybody loves it so much. And so after the last episode of season one, it's wild. And then it went in a totally different direction. Season two mm-hmm. and the rest are crazy bad shit like not even you would not see what's coming based on um based on what season one was like it's such a different vibe like it was such a a swerve i did not see it was amazing it's such a good show and it's Mm -hmm. like a feel good but not like a sappy show you know and it's still got like are you watching it on hulu or on netflix um i think it was on hulu or maybe it was on Netflix. I think it's on both okay. of them. Um, cool. And then I watched this movie called Ghost Team. And that was on Hulu. Ghost Team. Ghost Team. It's a guy who's obsessed with ghost hunters in the show Ghost Getters. It's a comedy. And um, he finds out, like, he works at a coffee shop and finds out that one of his customers who's making a keep out sign says that his land may be haunted. So the guy, like, gets a team of people together to go ghost hunt with him at this place and one of the people on the team is amy sedaris and she's a psychic and so they're like they go she's like a tele- television psychic you know and like a total faker and they show up at her show in the back uh you know like in the alley and they're like you know you already know what we're we're here for because you're a psychic and she's just like yeah of course and then she just kept playing along like she knew what was <laughs> happening and the next thing you know she's stuck on the ghost hunt <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's really the funniest part. It's a fine movie, but the Amy Sedaris parts are amazing. She's such she plays a great psychic. I'm sure you can imagine. And then, of course, the Masked Singer. Of course, the Masked <gasps> mask Singer, is, singer back. is back. Are we supposed to hate what's his face? Didn't he make anti-Semitic like, comments? I'm... Yeah, Nick Cannon said some crazy anti-Semitic shit, and. I wish that he hadn't because that show gives me life and I love it so much. I mean, I was already like, tolerating the judges. The only judge I don't personally hate is Kim Jong. Yeah. I mean, I don't personally 
hate any of well, the, the judges girl, except the, for the Jenny. The pussycat girls is fine. Well, there's that blurred line creepy dude. Right. I keep forgetting about how he's <laughs> such a creep. So, yeah. It, um, I I think that um, that he is the most replaceable part of that show. And yeah. he could easily be replaced. And the show would still be great. Um, but right now I'm just overlooking it because it is one of the the bright spots in my day to watch the same. Mass it's like I, I'm I'm like I shouldn't do this, but I love the mass singer. I wish they just make it easier and replace him. I am in love with the baby alien. Ba- baby alien is great. I don't know whether or not lips will have performed by the time this comes out, but. There was like the pre-show before like the first round started singing where they just sort of introduced all the costumes and each each costume like got to say like a sentence or two. And just because her way of speaking is so weird and so distinctive and even if they like do that weird thing where they alter their voice so you can't hear their speaking voice properly, I know for a fact that Lips is Countess Luann Dillaseps from Real Housewives of New York. I have no idea like, who that is. Nobody else talks like her in the world. I'm a I'm insane for a Real Housewives of New York. I don't know why. It's just how it, it just is what it is. And I know for a fact that Lips is her. So hear me now and believe me later and know that I have the golden ear. One last thing I've been watching is uh, Lisa B, um, editor at Bust. She wrote about this podcast called Stuck in Stony Brook, which is about um, the Babysitter's Club. And they read each Babysitter's Mm -hmm. Club book together and then talk about it. And that is really cute. You know, it's lighthearted. And then they, like, discuss each of the the books and they talk about what was problematic back then that wouldn't be, you know, acceptable now. (laughs) They they do a candy check, like all the candy that they they mention in the book. And then... um, I don't know. It's just, it's super cute. I'm really into it. What have you been watching? I'm so glad you asked. Well, the one thing that I've been watching on Netflix that I truly enjoyed was Michelle Buteau's Netflix stand-up special, Welcome to Butopia. Oh, I didn't know she that was She is so funny. Yeah, it just came out. And um, I was really into her podcast, Late Night Whenever. And I was very happy to see her having her own Netflix stand-up special. I I watched um, her Netflix reality show, The Circle. I think you were watching that too, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot about that. That's the one where they all... Where people were sequestered and, and just getting... It was a popularity contest via social right, media. Right, the social alone. media one. That one was good. That show was so good, and she was such a good host of that. Speaking of which, Michelle Buteau should host The Masked Singer. That would be great. I would be Think so about good. it. Well, I'd that be would, into anybody else. Yeah, replace Nick. <laughs> replace Nick Cannon with Michelle Buteau. Powers that be, hear me, hear me. Uh, but anyway, so Michelle Buteau has a stand-up special. It's on Netflix. It's called Welcome to Butopia. She says all kinds of hilarious things about her Dutch husband, Gijs, which is <laughs> just Dutch names make me laugh. But, um, you know, she talked about how she just became, they became just became the parents of twins and how that's so wild and all kinds of cultural differences between she and Heis. And um, <laughs> it, it was just really funny. And I definitely needed to laugh this week. So I recommend it. Another thing that's great, that's good for a laugh, 
as I've mentioned to you, Callie, I'm working my way through the book, The Artist's Way, and I, I have to take myself weekly out onto artists' dates that are inspiring and fun. And so this past week, I went to Madame Tussauds Wax Museum uh-huh. in Times Square, New York. That's open right now? I'm sure it's not. It has recently reopened, and they have all kinds of COVID safety precautions in place. You cannot get in without a mask. The dates, the tickets are all timed and dated so to they can absolutely ensure social distancing. There's barely anybody in there when you're in there. It feels very empty and sanitized and safe. You have no problem staying at least six feet apart from people. Um, they have a new Halloween exhibit. If you're looking for something spooky fun to do that is still socially distanced and safe, they have this whole new Ghostbusters exhibit there. They have wax figures of Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig and Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones all busted up in their Ghostbusters onesies. And you have to climb down into like this haunted New York City subway station. I didn't realize from the outside how enormous Madame Tussauds is. It's like nine stories. It's oh, humongous. And so like, they they put you in these environments like these diorama type environments but like you're in the diorama it's everything is like actual size so like you climb down into like an actual sized haunted new york city subway station and it's so scary like there's a train coming in and it has like a scary ghost inside the train and it's so scary and then like if you remember in that ghost busters there was this haunted mansion and you actually get to walk through it and there's like portraits with eyes that like follow you and um there's also in a separate section not part of the ghostbusters part it was part of the this phantom of the opera situation they had going on it a very dark scary and very disorienting hall of mirrors like i've been in like fun houses before they had little halls of mirrors and you just sort of look at the floor and figure it out but this was because it was really dark and well done. It was very scary. And um, like you think that you're walking into <laughs> a hallway and you smash into yourself <sighs> and you turn around and like it, it was exactly the right amount of scary fun. Um, like you get you finally find your way out of this whole. Well, I definitely was thinking about the movie Us when I was in there, cause that has a great hall of mirrors um, scene. And it was like that. And then when you r- right as you leave, like this big phantom of the opera chandelier, like comes swinging towards your head and it's so scary. I love it. Um, I really loved it. So um, know that Madame Tussauds in New York is open and it's um, timed and socially distant and safe and spooky, scary fun. I enjoyed it. And The last thing that I've been watching is, of course, the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. It has just made its debut into the world, and we really need your help to keep Bust alive now more than ever. I'm hoping that you will be excited by the goodies we've hooked up for our Pop-Tarts patrons over at patreon.com slash Podcast. Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes for every single episode. I believe we're now up to episode 93 or 94. And so everything that everyone has been watching is all linked up in there. And if you give us, I think, as little as $5 a month, then you have access to 
exhaustive lists of what everybody has ever watched on uh and talked about on this show to uh replenish your netflix queue there's also other really cool incentives to patronize slash matronize us we just had (laughs) one of our our generous donors on the last episode telling us what she was watching you get zoom chats with callie and i this week i'm going to the bust office to put together a package of goodies for our most generous matrons because Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that they get after six months they get a, a total goodie box full of all kinds of cool swag uh, exclusive content like our episode with Big Frida, all there on patreon.com slash Pop Tarts Podcast. We would appreciate it if you would check it out. And that, my friend, is what I have been watching. A Love big it. thanks to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente. <laughs> and our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily. You cannot find Callie on social media, so don't even try. You can email us both. I'm at Emily Rems at bus.com. Callie W at bus.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash pop tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple podcasts. We super duper appreciate it. It really helps us get the word out until next time. We did it, Callie. Awesome. What you doing for the rest of the day? We're good. I gotta make food. I haven't eaten yet. I'm starving. Callie, eat something. Callie, eat something.